And so you've got people that didn't deserve it who didn't send it back. You've got people who deserved a check who didn't get one. This is a scandal. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. The gang is back in town. Kevin Grout, Sean Southard, with, who's drinking what tonight? Hint. A hint, not Zenify, <laughs> because we've not heard back whether or not they're going to sponsor this podcast. We're following up. A hint is a Blackberry? Yes. Blackberry Essence. Scott, what are you drinking there? La Croix. The French. <laughs> Jared, welcome back. I can't say the French anymore, by the no, way. You can't. No, you can't. No. No, I, no, I only saw That's a tweet on this. What happened there? The Associated Press, right? Yes. Your decided, former employer. Decided. I was never an employee of the AP. No. The Associated Press decided that if you put the word the in front of a descriptive term, that it is somehow. Bad. Like it's we violence. Are, You've like, committed violence against Against them. definite and, articles. Indefinite only going So if forward. I said like. You are the middle aged, or whatever. <laughs> I would just need to say you're middle aged. Like somehow saying the. Oh, you see. are a person that has reached the age of middle. And it yeah. turns out the French didn't like that. Yes. They they literally tweeted. They said now the problem offensive with this phrases is, like the French. The problem with this is is that they they themselves refer to their own organization as the Associated Press. <laughs> <laughs> see, I only saw the the headline and, and I didn't I didn't understand it then, and I'm I'm kind of only understanding. I think it this half ranks now. right up there with when Stanford decided that the word American was somehow yep. offensive, and we're yep. not allowed to say that anymore. You know, we got we got the language people are they're the out language in force. police. They're out in force right now. We will be talking tonight a little bit about uh, some uh, academia and what's going on there. You mentioned Stanford. How about maybe some Princeton and, uh, oh, and yeah. whether yeah. a policy there is racist? But we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. The but answer first, may shock you. The answer? Oh, <laughs> no, that is... no, answer may shock you. Oh, that's your <laughs> answer. <laughs> answer. Just answer. That is one of the... I have a long list of the things that just drive me insane. Grievances, you would say? Uh, yes. This, this is my, my, my festivist thing about local TV news. The answer may surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> and it, first of all, it hardly ever does. <laughs> Sean, I, but it does come at 11. Yeah. Uh, Sean, I know you have huge news to report tonight and all the work you've been doing, but first, let's listen to Joe's list of grievances. <laughs> and then a raccoon went through my garbage cans. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, no. so speaking of TV news, I want to give a shout out to my friends at WKYT in Lexington, yep. as well as my friends at WPSD in Paducah, both of whom have been reporting on a story. Uh, PSD was first in December, mm-hmm. and then KYT kind of picking up that. Picking up the Herald Leader article. Picking up the Herald Leader article. So we have a, a variety of media coming together on really uh, uh, a kind of a developing story. I don't know if you have a developing story, Stinger, Scott. I don't, but while you are uh, setting this up for the next several minutes, I will look for one. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. So really kind of drag know. it out. Now you're all over motion life. Okay, let's go to WKYT, the broadcast from the evening of February 1st, 2023 of dollars meant for Western Kentucky tornado victims ended up in the wrong hands. WKYT's Kelsey Soto talked with the governor today about what happened and what's now being done about it. It is our top story at 4.30. When Mother Nature devastated Western Kentucky in December 2021, the community looked to others in the Commonwealth for a hand up. Governor Andy Bashir says more than $52 million of private funds were raised following the deadly tornadoes. Several months ago, his administration authorized $1,000 checks to be sent out to victims to help recover and rebuild. But some Kentuckians, like Teresa Gammon, say they received those funds in error. And I called several numbers. I called State of Kentucky and I called FEMA. And I just think that it's very odd. And I feel like there's some major fraud going on and how much more fraud that we haven't caught. She told WPSD in Paducah that she lives in northern Kentucky and has no ties to the damaged areas. I asked the governor about the checks today, who tells me their list of names came directly from FEMA and private insurance companies, each who had previously paid out their own funds to those victims. It appears that there has been uh, at least some mistakes within the insurance companies and within FEMA. Governor and we're Andy working to address those, but by using their verification system, oh, we didn't have to pay cafeteria. millions of dollars to independently verify each and every person. And what that means is even if there's 100 checks that we have to pull back, it means millions of extra dollars ended up in people's pockets. 
The Public Protection Cabinet tells WKYT they issued 10,040 checks. 184 were canceled, which is about 1.8%. Some required a name change, and others were returned to sender without explanation. In Frankfurt, Kelsey Soto, WKYT. There's Scott playing developing story. <laughs> developing story stinger. This is a fascinating story. For this evening, uh, I'm a, even though I'm a former journalist, I'm going to play the role of the journalist here, Sean, and ask you some questions. Here. I'm excited for you. Well, no, I, it's kind of <laughs> before you do that. By the way, yes. Hey, hey, this is a great story. The governor is lying, right? I mean, let's talk about this. What's going on, Sean? Well, I mean, it appears that the governor is saying one thing, and FEMA is saying he's wrong. Let, let, let's talk about the money. We right. went out and raised the money. And by the way, many of us encourage people to give to this fund. This specific this was a, fund. A this nonpartisan. Yep. Everybody pitched in. Everyone was told if you donate to this fund, yep. it would solely go to people who've been affected by the Western Kentucky tornadoes of December 2021. And the money went out, and it's solely been under his discretion. This is not public money. It has nothing to do with insurance companies. It has nothing to do with FEMA. He's blaming insurance companies. This money was raised by him and has been administered by him and his people. Yes, that's correct. All I right. do. I do remember when this first came out that that one of the first questions that was asked was, "How are you going to know who gets the money?" And I think pretty pretty early on, Sean, the governor's office did say that this would be based upon FEMA. Uh, qualifications. They may have said that, but what's interesting in this reporting that's been borne out is that they blamed FEMA for whatever fraud or mistaken checks were sent out. But our Kentucky press corps, including the reporting that we heard tonight, went to FEMA and asked them the question. And FEMA, at least in the Herald-Leader story that was reported earlier today, said, well, we wouldn't give anyone a check that had any potential fraud in it. That's why we've removed potential fraud from the list that we might have given them. And, and this lady in northern Kentucky who's in the story, this isn't fraud. This is a – and she said she doesn't even, she doesn't even live anywhere near right. where this happened. She had nothing to do with this and obviously is not a fraudulent person. She didn't try to get this. She didn't ask for this. She willingly right. called FEMA to complain. Have you <laughs> ever thought about calling the federal government You have to think about that, like what, what – what muscles you have to use in your brain to be like, you know what? I got a check in the mail, and I'm and I'm like feel like a good person to yeah. call and let the government know that I don't deserve this check. But here's what I can tell you: I'm from down there. You know people that lost their homes. I know people who lost everything, who've not gotten any money from this fund. And now I know, thanks to this work that's been done, there are people who don't even live down there getting money from this fund. And so here's what I'd like to know: as a citizen who has friends and family in the area. How can they be sure that everybody who qualifies got a check? And how and and I, I mean I know people who did got who got nothing. How many people got nothing? That's what I'd like to know. And then when I know the answer to that, what I'd like to know is how did you decide? How did you decide who got checks and who didn't? Because this wasn't just purely, you know, some algorithm. Somebody was making decisions. Mm -hmm. And some of the decisions led people who lost things to get nothing, and I want to know how it happened. What's really interesting about this story is that if you listen or read the words carefully from the statements that the administration's put out or what the governor has said, you notice that they don't know how many of these checks went to the wrong people. They can't answer the question. They know how many have been returned. Right, but they don't know how many people just got a check. Yeah. And there are a lot of good people out there who return the checks because they knew they didn't deserve it. But I'll guarantee you checks went to people who shouldn't have gotten them, and they didn't return them. Right. And there's no possible way for them to know, I guess, as far as we know tonight. Right. And so you've got people that didn't deserve it who didn't send it back. You've got people who deserved a check who didn't get one. This is a scandal. I mean, this is a big deal. And... You know, I think there's more to learn here. Now, what the governor said, he was the one speaking there toward the end of a pretty long soundbite from a media gaggle at the state capitol on uh, Wednesday afternoon. His argument is, listen, is everything perfect? No. But had we invested in some system that would actually go and investigate all these things and verify you actually would have – it would have cost so much money to set this up and restricted funding – so as a result, the, the net result is more people who are deserving will get the funds. And I guess by inference, 
is that there are are there some people who will, who don't deserve it who will get that? Yes, but ultimately the net result is going to help the most people who need it. And those pretty words mean nothing to the people Scott was talking about who got nothing. Yeah, I'm, I, there, there's more to learn here, and you know the accounting of this. I mean, it's, well, and, and it's, it's not you, public money, but it's being administered by public officials. I mean, it it's a weird setup anyway. In, in an election year, we have to say it. This is all coming about coming out in 2023 when the governor is on the ballot. Explain to me how that affects the election. <laughs> well, there, no, there, there, there are people across the state getting a check yeah. from the government and from sh- the governor. And here's what I want to know: Do you know the answer to this, Sean? What's in the envelope? Well, I mean, there's been some reporting on this is that people got a letter from the government with a check. So the so who's, so think about this for letter? a second. And I've not seen the you know, I the reporting to, as we know it now is that we've seen half a letter according to WPSD, but so so the government sent a letter with a pri- with a check of private money mm-hmm. to individual voters, people. And what did the note say? Do we know? No, at this point in time, all we know, like we've seen half a letter. I haven't seen the full, uh, the, the full clip from WPSD that has the full letter, but I think that some people should look into this and see what the letter actually said. Yeah, I'd like to know what the letter says. If you have received a letter or have access to one, please contact Scott Jennings <laughs> and Sean well, Southern. Well, look, th- this happened. Remember, at the federal level, there's been arguments about when there have been like tax rebate checks or, mm-hmm. or checks that have, you know, when we had the stimulus payments, right? And isn't what's you know, good for the goose good for the gander? The president sending out letters saying, you know, here's a letter, for, you know, here's a check from the president or what. And people have a meltdown about this. I would like to know what communication was sent to these people and who took. Because here's the thing: this isn't Andy Bashir's personal money. It's not even the taxpayers' money. This, this, is, this private is money donated like from people like out of the goodness of their hearts. Yeah, that but, were told a promise by the governor. But I'd like to know what was communicated to people who got the checks about. The money and and who's responsible for it? Because to me, there are political implications to that. Let me uh, quote the governor from the gaggle on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, by the way, you mentioned the Herald Leader. The reporter is Tessa Duvall. We mentioned the reporter's name from WKYT. Uh, and Bashir, she says in the story posted by the Herald Leader, when asked by reporters if he had seen the GOP response, one quoted by Sean Southerd. Thank you, Sean. He says, you mean the opposite party during an election year would use words like that? Well, I guess the Republican Party of Kentucky believes helping farmers who lost their granary is wrong. I guess the Republican Party of Kentucky believes rebuilding 300 homes is wrong. I guess the Republican Party no longer believes in private donations as a way to support our families. Listen, this money has done a huge amount of work. We ought to, in a bipartisan way, say thank you to the donors. We paid for every funeral. That's certainly not a slush fund, so shame on them for suggesting that. So, Sean, your chance, you have the podcast to respond to the governor. Well, again, I, I'm not disputing the fact that the, maybe there were good uses of the fund that were used in the appropriate way, but I do think that there are questions to be raised about what are the proper procedures for the way that the governor then distributed these funds, the, the way in which people received the funds and the communication surrounding them. Um, you know, at, this, at the same time, you know, no one including in this story that it was in the Herald Leader, FEMA is in here saying we didn't give them fraudulent information to send them checks to the wrong people. Right. So it's it's not like somebody held a gun to you know the public protection cabinet's head and said, please send out these checks to the wrong people. I mean, if people donated to this fund for the purpose of helping tornado relief victims, shouldn't they have helped tornado relief victims? I, I would say this idea that you would have to have installed – a multi, multi, multi-million dollar <laughs> system. Well, first of all, the first thing you could have done is put everybody into a spreadsheet and sorted it by zip code. Yep. And said that'd be yeah, one way to identify make, where they live. Let's make yeah. sure the you know we know where the tornado went. We right. know what zip codes it went through, so we could just you know that's one that'd be one place to start. This lady in northern Kentucky would obviously not have been in the right zip code. Right. That doesn't cost a million dollars. Doesn't cost a dollar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> got Google Sheets. I mean, <laughs> Control I mean, F. <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly. Yeah. That, that, and so the idea that this was the only way to do it. Well, if I could, first of all, people who FEMA in the first place, people have people apply for FEMA funding. Yeah. And so that's how they that, that database is put together. Is my understanding at least. There are there are applications, and then FEMA. I think doled out like $15 million or such, the article said, uh, on in, in those benefits. And 
if in fact, the, and I and I believe that the state and, this, and or I should not not the state. I'm sorry, the private donations from Team Kentucky Relief Fund paid for these funerals, right? But that that would have not have been. I don't think. I don't know. I mean, were they just like calling the funeral homes and saying we're going to pay for this? Were people applying for it? I mean, in other words, this was not the only the only way. It wasn't through FEMA how they were paying for funerals. My my whole point to your point, Scott, is that there was more than one way that they were choosing how this money was being distributed well, at that time. Well, let me be you know a Republican you know that praises the media for actually doing their job mm-hmm. and investigating something. Like this is their job is to look into this because we don't know, like. A lot of questions. But there's a lot of questions about this, and this is actually when the media does their job and actually goes after people and, and asks hard questions, we might actually get answers. Yeah, I, I'll add a little bit of context to this, too. Uh, we talked about this with uh, Sean's story in the open records request around school closures. Uh, you know, part of the the uh, sort of impetus of that is that we knew that the scandal sort of happened on the national level. We knew Biden and his team coordinated with teachers unions we know that people within Bashir's administration did this with unemployment claims during COVID-19 that there was favors given that his own lieutenant governor prioritized friends and donors with these unemployment funds and we had people waiting outside the capitol and you know lines like a mile long during a pandemic all day during the pandemic and still couldn't get their unemployment insurance figured out during uh COVID-19 and so it's not like his office has always handled these crises perfectly well, that everybody's got a clean nose who works in his administration. They have a habit of helping friends and donors skip the line and receive government funds or funds Great that point. they have access Great to. Point. So that, that sort of perks your ears up. And all of a sudden they have another big fund here, another crisis that – this this great crisis governor is apparently failing at again. So, it, it, it you know, I think it, it perks your ears up a little bit. Bashir's attitude is that he deserves the benefit of the doubt. That, you know, I'm only acting altruistically. I don't have partisan But shouldn't instincts. take any of the blame. But that's that's always his argument. And you, you make the case of why, no, as a public official, you should not necessarily get the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. You should only get the benefit of transparency. And if the transparency shows you did right, fine. But if the transparency shows you made mistakes, we need to know that. Let me say one more thing about this that bothers me as a citizen. The governor in 2019 ran his whole campaign. The branding of it was Team Kentucky. Mm -hmm. When he became the governor, he imported his campaign branding and his campaign logo and the whole thing into the state. It's now our state's brand. State parks have it. Yep. License, license plates have license it. License plates. So he so he took his political branding and made it state branding. Then when the tornadoes hit, he then turned his political campaign branding into this charity fund branding. Now that branding, which has had its origins in a political campaign, is being used. I assure you, the logo is on the letters that's going out. It's being used to send people checks in the mail, from what they heretofore had only known as Andy Bashir's campaign branding. No one has ever called him on this. No, If a Republican had implemented their campaign branding into state government, you know, you'd have people jumping, you know, off the Aegon Tower downtown Louisville. I mean, it would be a mass chaos out there. But they've never been called on it. And now that you have money-changing hands under the brand of this, and we don't know where it's going, and we don't know who got it and why, and and so on and so forth, to me, it is the right time to question, why was Andy Bashir allowed to take his campaign's brand and turn it into the state's brand and now turn it into the slush fund brand? The, the last great phrase, by the way, I think I heard that in a statement that I issued earlier today. So <laughs> uh, the only other thing I'll say is you raise a lot of good points. It raises questions about how he used these other two funds. That he's created and then imported his campaign brand on. You know, it's not just the Western Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund. Right. He had a COVID relief fund, and he had an Eastern Kentucky Tornado or a flooding relief fund. So we now have three funds. That it, this one fund with Western Kentucky had over fifty-four million dollars in it. Yeah. Who knows? So I have a question for all of you as political strategists, though. Beyond your your troubles with what he did. Which is clear. I mean, what you said was factual. He imported those campaign brands. There's no question about that. That's that's fact. Isn't it kind of smart 
I mean, from 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 a political standpoint, and from a, I mean, is it if if it's effective? If if your goal is to get reelected and to look good and to, I'm, I'm just asking the question. I mean, it's it. Couldn't you give them some credit for kind of this is this is brilliant as long as nobody calls you on from a from a branding and messaging standpoint? Sure, it's smart. But anyone who's spent any time around campaigns and official government work know there is a campaign and there's official work, and those two have to be extremely separate. There are laws involved saying they have to be separate. Yeah, um, whether it's smart or not, the question is: Is it right? Is it ethical? Is, is it right? No, no. And, is it legal? And, and oh, oh, really? So it's legal and ethically there, there's actually, challenged. There's actually there's actually a very a very important legal question that involves what is what. What business does the state have to oversee private funds in which we have a state government in which the General Assembly that has the power of the purse, power of the purse to appropriate – these funds are not appropriated. They have not They have not gone through the appropriations. There's been no – They're private oversight. donations though. But what, I, what, I, what I would argue is if he had wanted to have done this and not have this cloud hanging over him, he would have solicited these funds and then invited – other state officials, maybe the Senate president and the Speaker mm-hmm. of the House, and I don't know, the Attorney General, the state auditor, the state treasurer, treasurer, to help be part of a board that oversaw this. But he didn't do that. Mm-hmm. That would have removed any clouds about the way this is working. But he did it all on his own, and now he's going to own it on his own. I will say that I was curious from the beginning. Most every other disaster that I'm familiar with Funds usually go like to the American Red Cross. Yeah, yep. uh, there's typically, uh, you know, in other words, there are systems and people in place who know what the situation is on the ground, and they can more nimbly move those assets to reach people when they need it. And so this was this was always curious to me as far as adding an extra layer of bureaucracy, especially if you consider the fact, I guess, in this story from the Herald Leader and other media outlets that. I guess they're saying that ten million dollars has been distributed from this Team Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund for a tornado. When was it? Twenty twenty one. Over a year ago, right? But I believe twenty four million dollars is still in the fund. Yeah, there's there, they raised fifty four million dollars or so something like the, that. No, this fund. Now again, then this would be a situation where, as far as to your point, Scott, as far as who's answerable, maybe there should be an independent board. Uh, like a, a a a group, so you've had plenty of time now. It's one thing in the middle of an emergency, you don't have. To, I mean, at that point, you're like, I'm a crisis, you know, uh, uh, executive. I'm going to make sure people are safe and not dying and get them the help they need at that moment. But a year later, the question is, should there be someone else kind of auditing or looking over this and supervising? It? Essentially, he started a charity right. using the resources of the state, right, and. Under the auspices of helping victims, but he, you know, if you were just if you were just a random person setting up a charity, you'd have to have a board, you'd mm-hmm. have to have right. other people involved. What he did is set up a charity with his name on it, and his political operatives and his political appointees, and that's it. There's no, there's no accountability here to the to anybody, especially to the to the General Assembly, as Sean said, who would normally have some accountability on money flowing through the executive branch. That stinks. I'm sorry. It stinks. And I, look, I encourage people to give to this fund. Yep. I know a lot of politicians in both parties. I believe you encourage people on CNN. You yeah. made a, like a national appeal. I did. And and you had politicians in both parties appealing to folks like, let's get all of our contributions here. You know, you know, shame on me for thinking that maybe this was going to be done in a in a nonpartisan or bipartisan manner or in a way that would have transparency and accountability. I don't feel that way today. Because of the reporting that Sean has uh, and the press here has brought to light. So, Sean, I guess we don't know all the facts yet, and and and, and this is an excellent exercise in asking questions and throwing things out there, and yeah. not reaching conclusions necessarily, but asking the question to say, okay, where, who is deciding, and and how, and and who got it, who shouldn't have gotten it. But so I'm asking, I'm going to put a challenge to you. What what do you think should happen from this point on? Do you th- do you think there should be an independent group that kind of takes this over? Rather than it still being under the governor's auspices, would that be one potential solution to make sure that there is, you know, this is being done responsibly? I don't. I don't think we should be hasty about it, but I think people should should look into this and and see what's going on. Ask the right amount of questions and look. The general assembly is going to be back in a few weeks in Kentucky. If and- if only there were, I don't know, somebody with the title of auditor. <laughs> 
right down the hallway, or I don't know, someone with the title of treasurer right down the hallway. The reality is... Treasurer Ball has been looking at this. Inclusive, inclusive leadership, which he purports to practice. It's staring him right in the face. Yep. He could remove all the clouds with the existing other state of fit, who I'm sure would be more than happy to help the people of West Kentucky and the people of East Kentucky. He should be more than happy to do it. But this is the complaint you hear about this guy over and over. No no, uh, collaboration with the General Assembly. No collaboration with the other state officials. And now you've got this money. It's not just sour grapes. Like, this is real stuff. And and yet, publicly, he purports to be some nonpartisan, bipartisan, postpartisan, you know, leader. Leadership is collaboration. Look, these people want elections, too. They also have constituents in these affected areas, too. And so if you wanted to, like, be clean about this and be above board and actually practice what you preach, nonpartisan leadership, you'd involve these people. And that way, the general public would say, we have more confidence in this. But now, something that's supposed to be good, people giving charitable contributions, now everybody's like, what have I done here? And they feel bad about it. And that it shouldn't be that way, and it doesn't have to be that way, but the insular nature of it makes it that way. Is there a, uh, I guess the auditor you're saying is the natural position within state government to oversee this. I was just thinking about Congressman James Comer and his new role in the Congressional Oversight Committee. Is there any comparable uh, body here other than the auditor to kind of look into this? I guess maybe, unless it would be like a Commonwealth attorney or, you know, a, a U.S. I attorney. Know. I mean, the, the auditor, the, the, the auditor... It would be the natural, the treasurer. There's, there's some yeah. good legislative oversight bodies mm-hmm. uh, in the General Assembly who I'm sure would love to dig into this. There, uh, of course, there is. But if per- you were in Bashir's position, uh-huh. and, and Sean here is like, you know, lobbing grenades at you every day, wouldn't you love to be able to say, well, look, I worked with right, the right, auditor right. and the treasurer here, right. and we and we all agree that this is being handled appropriately. I mean, it would totally take the sting out of this, and it would it would cause people to say, okay, fine, he seems like he's handled it appropriately. They just mm-hmm. this is a fumble. A fumble. I, I mentioned Jamie Comer. The, uh, of course, there is precedent in Kentucky for a bipartisan <clears throat> investigation of, uh, of, of questions about the way that things have been operated. When when Jamie Comer was ag commissioner and and uh, Adam Edelin was the auditor when they investigated yeah, Richie Farmer. Right. So I'm they saying there, there is a record there of, uh, of all that. Well, this story I think was really interesting today, Sean. Thank you for reporting on the pod on it. But it was not the only Andy Bashir related story and speaking of jamie comer he had a very interesting hearing today didn't he? <laughs> he did comer today we're, we're recording this podcast on wednesday night today was the first official meeting of the government oversight and accountability chaired by uh, it, jamie comer that committee had its first hearing today joe and we had an interesting uh, exchange between comer friend of the pod and another Al- friend of the pod alexandria <laughs> cortez In Kentucky, state employees applied for unemployment benefits while still employed by the state and were able to hack the state's information management system and remove all of their own accounts. And none of these states have been put under investigation. Whoa. If uh, Mr. Ocasio-Cortez is willing, I would love to join in a joint (laughs) investigation of the Kentucky unemployment system (laughs) and New York unemployment system if if you wanted to do that, a joint probe or whatever. I would love to work with you on that or any of the 50 states because I believe it's a problem in all 50 states, especially Kentucky. You're exactly right. I mean, Jamie, (laughs) by the way, when when she said out loud that Andy Bashir's administration – had corruptly operated <laughs> the state <laughs> unemployment. You could almost hear Commissioner think, Comer like sprouting wings and flying think, around the room. I think he was like, girl, word? <laughs> <laughs> would you like to team up with me to investigate Andy Bashir's failures? Yes, I would just gladly do that. Just think you. of the tweets we would get. The now, likes would be crazy. And yeah. so has she has she uh <clears throat> revised or extended her remarks? I haven't I don't know. No, no. Uh, my understanding is that it was just kind of a Exchange they had. Yeah. So so not only is Andy Bashir having a tangle with Sean today, <laughs> he's also having a tangle with AOC. Getting it from all sides. This younger generation is after this governor. I know. <laughs> We're bad people. What, what are the chances Shame that she on knows, us. What are the chances she knows the governor of Kentucky is a Democrat? Well, no, I was thinking about this earlier when I saw this clip. 
is that she probably just looks across the nation and says, "Oh, oh it's like it's all red." Yeah. yeah. What are those? What are those bad guys out there? Jamie like, Comer, this hillbilly. He must. His governor must be a Republican. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly what. So she I'm going to attack his home state. Yeah. I just logged onto the Twitter. And uh, <laughs> sorry, you can't no. say that. You can't you say on that word. Twitter. Yeah. A Twitter that you said on. before a- Twitter. Twitter. I used the article. Or... You used oh, no. the article, <laughs> and now Twitter is offended. You can, committed violence against. Can I Twitter. revise my remarks? You're canceled. <laughs> <laughs> but she actually retweeted her own. The, someone reporting on that statement, and it's still on her website. It's still on the Twitter. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Twitter. <laughs> so basically, right now, it's still out there. It, it is, Republic. It's a bipartisan is, thing. It is a bipartisan. That's crazy. It's like Democrats and Republicans are united today and and coming to the understanding that Andy Bashir's administration <clears throat> needs some oversight yeah. and some transparency. And a little bit of accountability, too. Do you think that she didn't know that Kentucky had a Democratic governor? Is that possible? Oh, Kevin I bet. Just yeah. said that. I just, yeah, I oh, bet, yeah, I bet. I bet her. <laughs> While you were committing violence against Twitter by calling it <laughs> I, the Twitter, Kevin raised his point. But no, I mean, I don't know. But here's the thing: if she thought that, maybe she would have taken it down. But the fact that it's still out there, eh, double down. Why not? But now she's I'm, right I'm either anxious, way. I'm anxious to hear what Jamie Comer, friend of the pod, does with this and a follow up because. By the way, I'm sure this has happened in a lot of states. This is a legitimate area. He right. wasn't wrong. Right. He, yeah, when he said that he would be interested in having a 50 state. Probe. I mean, <laughs> that was actually admirable because he could have stopped at Kentucky and said fine, but he did say New York. Bring them all <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> you know, you know that that was good. That was really good today. Uh, but but oh, hold on, can we yes. just say it's really good to see him in that chair? We've been talking yeah. about Jamie oh, Comer becoming yeah. the chairman soon. We we've been pre- previewing this for a long time. Had him on the pod. It Delivering really, on day one. I it was really up. good to see him in the chair. I woke up in Washington D.C. this morning. Had an early flight to come home to Kentucky. Walked into the airport. Looked up at the TV. There was Jamie ah, Comer on the TV great. right there in the airport, getting ready to take the chair. It was it was terrific. So obviously he's a he's a friend of the pod. He's been a guest of the podcast. We've we we all know Congressman Comer. Uh, what what kind of pressure is he under right now? I mean, in terms of there's been a lot of talk about this. There's been a lot of of um, oh shade thrown his way from national commentators, Chuck Todd, among others. Oh, this is all personal to you about the Hunter Biden stuff. So, I mean, I'm just saying is when he, as he's rolling out his chairmanship here, you know, how important is, are, are these first few hearings and, and how he goes about this? Oh, I think he, I think these first few hearings are very important as it relates to making sure that what the, you know, the, the avenues they're pursuing, they're buttoned up on, yeah. you know, they're well prepared. They're, you know, the guests are, the, the, the witnesses are good. Uh, I think today's hearing was terrific. Mm-hmm. He's off to a good start. A bipartisan start, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, off to a bipartisan start. I, I, I also think that um, the only real pressure he is under, in my opinion, is to be thorough and to be 360 degrees on these things and to always keep this in mind. The Oversight Committee does not simply exist as a cudgel against your political opponents. It exists to identify problems and then to drive toward a legislative solution to those problems. I've heard Congressman Comer talk about this, and so I don't think he's under any pressure. I just think that you always have to keep an eye on that. Like, we're looking into this because we may want to pass legislation that fixes it, and and this is the recommendation we're going to make. And I think they're off to a terrific start on that. And as long as you keep it fair and keep it between the navigational beacons and keep your eye on that ultimate ball, I mean, I think I think he's going to have a lot of success. We, of course, have been talking about Jamie Comer for a long time in Kentucky. You know, yeah. his, his, his 83 votes short of winning the Republican nomination for governor, you know, five years ago to uh, – or I guess, no, eight years ago now, right? But I, I'm losing track of my of, of what's what season that was. 2015, yeah. Um, but for a lot of people across the country, today's hearing was the first time they're seeing him. Yeah, yeah. yeah this, this is a, this is a, I'm just saying it's a different context of all. He, that. He's been on a lot of cable news. He's I don't know how many cable news he's been. He's yeah, been around for a while. <laughs> well, and if you watch Fox News or Newsmax, or yeah. and I will say that he, my gosh, I mean, if as far as transparency is concerned and availability, yeah, I mean, he has been as out there as anyone. He 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 did a big thing at the National Press Club this right. week. He did a huge interview, right. which, which is terrific. And that was going to bring that up. Thank you, because that's, that says something. It's one thing to appear on the friendly networks, but they're going for the National Press Club and to be as composed and prepared and uh, and, and disciplined yeah. about what you're saying here. It just shows it's a reflection of what your priorities and your motivations are versus it just being a purely partisan exercise. Everything he's done to me has looked 
amazingly professional. Yep. You know, yep. like he's he's just not hopping on TV to rant and rave for four minutes so for the purpose of sending out a fundraising email. Every time he makes an appearance, it's hyper-professional. He's got his facts buttoned up. He'll tell you exactly what he's going to do, yep. why he's going to do it, the purpose of it. it. It's it's really impressive so far, and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how. I mean, you know, I don't expect a ton of bills to pass, right. you know, these this uh, Congress. But that, therefore, makes the investigatory piece that much more prominent, and therefore Congressman Comer will be— Right out in front of him. He's one of the top three or four Republicans in the House of Representatives right now. And his performance over the last month or so makes us proud to say that. We, we've got some good leadership there. And, of course, it's also coinciding with the one of the largest political stories of, of the last couple of months, and that's this classified document situation with Joe Biden. He's all over that with other things with the National Archives and yep. kind of talking about the fact that they've had a lot of struggles getting some things released. And the National Archives is, is being apparently is being hamstrung by either the White House or the DOJ. Hmm. And here you have someone, though, in a position who's savvy enough to understand that right. and, and, to, and to press for it. So, Jamie Comer, congratulations on a successful first day. Yep. Uh, the More to come. Yeah, exactly. Let me ask and you, Andy Scott. Bashir, watch your back. <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has She's got a coming. target on it. In uh, your own house. <laughs> we mentioned uh, cable television networks and people who are on there a lot. Hey, hey, Scott. Hey. hey. Uh, so you, you're getting, uh, you're being characterized by Daily Caller as perhaps being the 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 top uh, protagonist for our, our our supporter for Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I saw that this week. Um, well. Over the last few months, especially since the midterm, it seems like most of my appearances uh, that have gotten into politics at all, which is most of them, have kind of devolved into a, you know, what's the future of Donald Trump? What's the future of Ron DeSantis? What's his presidential primary going to look like? And I was on the lead the other day, Jake Tapper's show, although Alex Marquardt was the uh, was the host that day. But <clears throat> we were talking about this article, I don't know if you guys read it, in The Atlantic by McKay Coppins, where he went around and asked all these Republicans about Donald Trump and what what's the Republican Party's plan to defeat Donald Trump? Can he be defeated? Will he be the nominee? And you had all kinds of people saying ridiculous things like, well, maybe he'll just decide it's for the good of the country not to run. Maybe he'll die. Maybe he'll be indicted. Maybe he'll sprout wings and fly to Mars. You know, there's all these sort of cockamamie, you know, ideas. He's not going to go away. And so anyway, Alex asked me a question, which was very simple. You know, is hope a strategy? I don't know. Are we going to play it? It was a great moment. Okay. Oh, wait. Listen, <laughs> Scott is here, but it was a great moment. CNN this past week, Scott being asked about do, the strategy. Do we have to throw the explicit filter on this one? Do we have to, oh, yes. if your children no. are in the car? It's <laughs> fine. It's a donkey ruler for reference. Okay, here we go. Republican. We, we heard from uh, the Atlantic's McKay, McKay Coppins. He wrote that while many Republicans do want to see Trump go away, that they really don't have any plan. I, I want to read a bit of what he wrote. Lots of Republicans want Donald Trump to disappear from politics. Their main strategy here is hope. Uh, faced with the prospect of another election cycle dominated by Trump and uncertain that he can actually be beaten in the primaries, many Republicans are quietly rooting for something to happen that will make him go away, and they would strongly prefer not to make it happen themselves. <laughs> Scott, is hope a strategy? Uh, no. There's only one strategy for getting rid of Trump. It's to beat his ass. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Ron DeSantis is going to have to get in this race. And beat him. That's the only way to make this go away. Now, he might have legal troubles and other things are going to happen. And that's it. There's no other strategy except to run and get more votes and win. And there are things that will complicate that. Other people getting into the race for instance. Yeah, but look, they, let me just tell you. You got Trump and DeSantis who are in a different universe in terms of their level of national support. And everybody else is like fighting for 1% of the rest of the oxygen. If, if DeSantis wants to make a go of this, the reservoir of support exists to do it. The message, the generational message exists to do it, but he's got to do it. And they're going to have to get out there and meet him on the battlefield. Yeah, I mean, and appreciate it. look, in order, to, in order to be the man, you got to beat the man. Who said that? Ric Flair. Yeah. And, what and, kind of response have you gotten to this? Oh, I, a lot of people have sent it to me. This was great. This was hilarious. You know, whatever. But... But everybody in their heart that knows anything about politics knows it's true. It's true. And, and you know, I don't know Ron DeSantis. I don't think I've ever met him. I'm impressed by him uh, and his instincts and what he's been able to pull off politically in, in Florida. But I'm telling you, I see a lot of polling nationally, in states, privately. This guy is popular. 
I mean, his his net favorability is better than Trump's. Look, I'm not arguing Trump is now unpopular among Republicans. He's, you know, they, they do approve of him. But he's got a lot of detractors. But more than that, there's a lot of people who approve of him, voted for him twice, like everything he did. But in their hearts, no, he cannot win an election and that we need generational change. Final point. This country is demanding something other than a rematch. Mm-hmm. They are ready for the next generation of leadership. Both parties. There's a market demand Mm -hmm. for new blood in our political system. Which party is going to give it to them? The Democrats look like they're going to nominate Biden. That ain't acquiescing to market demand. If the Republicans nominate someone young and up and coming like DeSantis, the issues almost are secondary. The argument is clear. New generation of leadership, new blood. It's time to... Sweep away these old fights. And by the way, you know what's reinforcing that is this the FBI has now raided the homes of the last two American presidents. Maybe let's have a, a, a campaign. Maybe we'll have a campaign where at least one of the candidates hasn't been raided by the FBI. That would be amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing? Could you imagine? And so DeSantis right now, he is in a position to do this. There's other people that are going to run. Haley's getting in. I don't see it. I don't see how people who are out of office and who work for Trump are going to build anything over the next. I don't see it. Maybe I'm wrong. Just one man's opinion. But I'm telling you, DeSantis has support from every corner of the party, young, old, moderate, establishment, not establishment, Trump approved, Trump disapproved. He he has virtually no detractors in the party, but still has the support. And if he wants to run a campaign— it's going to fly high in a hurry. So I guess, Scott, in your best professional opinion, when should DeSantis get in? Yesterday? <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I could make an argument for today. I could make an argument for waiting. Because a little. His, his great approvals will go down as soon as he does, right? Well, will they? Because he has an advantage over these other contenders in that he's in office. Yeah. If you're Mike Pence, if you're Nikki Haley, mm-hmm. if you're Mike Pompeo— what do you? You don't have anything to do. You're not in office. That, you have no yeah. platform. That's but, very interesting. But they always say your best day on a campaign is the day before you announce, right? I'm not, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I. I mean, look, what he's doing right now in Florida, he, you know, he's kind of won around over this uh, with his AP yes, history yeah. class thing. You know, they've agreed to change the things, uh, the standards that he was concerned about of the curriculum. His platform is allowing him to rack up victories every day. What is Mike Pence's platform allowing for? You know, to do a couple of cable hits and make a speech. I mean, mm-hmm. you're not going to build the kind of reservoir of support necessary to beat a Donald Trump off speech making. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. None of these people, I, I mean, they're not orators of that caliber. I'm not sure anybody is. But as governor of Florida, this is how he got so popular in the first place. Right. He's not popular because of oration or because of idea. He's popular because of his performance. He's going to keep having that performance. Because he's got a platform. His, all of his other possible opponents, I guess, are out of office with the exception of Glenn Youngkin, yeah. who's also a governor. Tim Scott, I don't know if he's going to run, but you know he's got a little bit of a plan. But you know, you're not making things happen in the Chris Senate Sununu. every day. Yeah. Brian Kemp. Sununu, you know, who I spent some time with Sunday and, and had a chance to talk to. Great guy. Kemp, maybe, if he runs. <laughs> to me, the candidates with, a, with an office and, so they can actually generate some stuff every day, they have a huge advantage. And right now... The one who's taking the most advantage of it is obviously DeSantis. Yeah, Scott, you've said this a bunch of times about DeSantis. He has all the right enemies. And the other thing, he keeps winning. He like I don't think anybody expected him to win with this AP thing. You know, it, it seemed stunts not the right word, but you know, the, the critical race theory stuff has been such a uh, you know has inflamed so much over the last year. It was like, of course, we got to go after this. And then he won. Yeah. And then he got them to remove all of that BS from that course, and they're going to go along with it. And so it's like he picks the right enemies, and then he also wins. He went after Disney with the woke stuff, and he won. And he got, like it's, it's really impressive. He's in office, and he keeps chalking up these Ws. I'll tell you what else he did with this fight over this AP course. He, this is how his instincts – I mean, it's really good. He knew all the right people were going to overreact. Mm-hmm. He knew it. Yeah. And if you looked at any of the liberal coverage, MSNBC, the normal Twitter, so I mean, it, they were in full meltdown and they were lying and it was obvious. He has all the right enemies and really? he know and this is this is Trump like in a way. He knows how to push their buttons. Yes, mm-hmm. lovers, yeah. And yeah. when and when those people are melting down over something you're doing, you know what Republicans are doing? Rejoicing. <laughs> yeah. Clapping and yeah. clicking the donate button. <laughs> 
he gets it, man. The instincts on this guy are amazing, but it, but he's using his platform to do it, and it's not just brazenly political. He has a point. Yeah, he that, has a that, point. That, that's exactly. People I mean, can't read or write. Yes. and we're worried about teaching them about some of the stuff that was in that curriculum. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. This this is like one of the best parts about it is six months ago CRT wasn't taught in schools and now he's got the same people defending CRT being in schools. It's brilliant. And then on top of that, he gets that crap removed and they can move forward with what is probably going to be a good course now to actually help students. It, it the the ability for him to get multiple wins both in the media and in legislation to put students for I mean it's it's really really I, sad. The night this was breaking, I was on seeing I was doing a panel and there was a uh, one of my counterparts on there and. And and it was just what you said. You know, she started her argument by saying they don't even teach critical race theory in schools. But by the time she got to the end of her argument, it was and here's why all these things need to be taught in schools, <laughs> yeah. which I pointed out. Which then you know the thing went off the rails. It's a the, the Michael Scott thing. quote. Sometimes I start a sentence and I don't know where I'm going. But <laughs> but but the, the, broadly speaking, DeSantis knows when to pick these fights, how to pick them, and then how to finish them. That's the thing about Trump. He never could finish anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's all these sort of ideas, and occasionally they weren't bad, but he could never finish anything. There was never – he never could finish it. DeSantis finishes it and walks away with it saying, and here is the W. And it's – Republicans are so tired of losing, mm-hmm. losing elections, losing arguments about our culture. And they feel surrounded by all these institutions that are trying to destroy what they see as basic American values. And they're crying out for someone who can not only – see it their way, and defend it, but win the battle. And that's where DeSantis is going to end up, I think, in winning this primary. It's not like, oh, I didn't like it when you issued this order or that bill. It's going to be over who's going to be most effective, who can bring the generational change, who can move this forward instead of rehashing all the old crap. This, he, the, the argument to win is there. He just has to put his arms around it. I have a question for you procedurally, because we heard about how the Democrats had kind of engineered the primary process to help Joe Biden get reelected, right, and get the nomination again. Is just, and I'm putting you on the spot here, is the primary system for the Republicans set up in any way to favor Trump, DeSantis, anyone in particular? I mean, I don't think we've changed the calendar, right, Sean? No, um, and no. so Iowa remains first. Now, now the system itself is set up to help a candidate like Trump in this way. And this is not on purpose, but it's a winner-take-all. Yep. So you can get 40% of the vote in a state. As long as you get the most votes, you get all the delegates. That's how he won in 16. He got less than half the vote, but he won the primary because of the winner-take-all system. He didn't win the majority in a state. It was late in the process. So that helps a candidate like Trump, who does have a committed base. Yep. And so that's why everybody's sort of worried about the size of the field and slicing up the non-Trump pie. Uh, just based on what I see today, I, I don't think this field's going to get as big as people think it is. And I do think even some of the people that get in are not going to stay all the way when they realize they don't want to come in in eighth in Iowa. I also find it odd in terms of the the GOP primary field that Donald Trump is obviously the front runner coming into all this, right? Would you call him the front runner? I'm not sure. Somebody yeah. asked me this on a radio interview the other day. I said, well, you know, may- maybe he is nominally. But if you look maybe, at some of the polls, he's he not wa- ahead. He walks in with between 25 and 35 percent. But there's other metrics. You know, he has money. Yeah. He has a committed group of people who are fully dependent upon him for their livelihoods. I mean, they're, you know, he is based. By the way, he is the establishment. OK, he mm-hmm. was the president. This is his third run for yeah. president. He has all the money and all the operatives. And the baggage. He is the establishment. And so anytime you have that, what goes along with that, it's formidable. Don't make no mistake. It's formidable. There there are also some of these early state polls that show that he is not winning. No. In in some of these early primary states that you would need to win to rack it up to have the momentum to go into a full on. A couple of these national polls have shown him ahead. Also, some have shown DeSantis ahead, but it's irrelevant. Right. What's going to happen in Iowa and New Hampshire? You know, I was with Chris Sununu Sunday. We did State of the Union together, and I spent some, you know, he made the point on TV. Trump's not going to win New Hampshire. He's not winning there now, and he's not going to win it. And I don't know what's going to happen in Iowa. You know, you saw Trump roll out a a campaign in South Carolina. He obviously sees that state as a backstop, obviously. Mm -hmm. He's picked a fight with the evangelicals. He's picked a fight with the Mm pro-lifers. Guess who lives in Iowa? 
And so you can see the terrain here is is rocky for him. I was just thinking about my point about asking or positioning him as a front runner is, and he has the establishment coming in. Yeah, I'll just be curious to see if people start going after him. So far, like with Nikki Haley being maybe the first person to get in. I mean, she's been doing so, but but also kind of still kind of praising Trump. We, we played it last week. You know, this kind of like having it both ways. Yeah, this is not going to work, by the way. This, this is why her campaign, if this is what they're going to do, it, it, this will be irrelevant. DeSantis and Trump got into it this week. Did we actually pull this? I don't think we pulled it. We might see if we have it. But Trump started attacking DeSantis this yeah. week. And by, and by the way, rewriting history mm-hmm. on who made what COVID decisions. And who recommended to the states to make certain COVID decisions. Yeah, and, and, and now Trump is blatantly lying about what DeSantis did. And DeSantis responded and kind of was a pretty sharp response and essentially said, well, I think the electoral scoreboard speaks for itself. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but it's essentially mm-hmm. what he said. And instead of demurring, you know, when Youngkin got attacked the other day, he kind of demurred on it. But instead of just kind of sloughing off, he he went right back at him. And so what I think is going to happen is, as these people pop up and get in and get under Trump's skin, Trump will be the one initiating all the attacks. He can't yeah. help it. Remember, in 16, yeah. Rand Paul was at 1%, and he was still yeah. attacking Rand Paul. That's right. Yeah. So with DeSantis, who's not at 1%, he's going to attack DeSantis all the time, which then it—, it to, this is the strategy question you're asking. Who's going to attack him? Yeah. Trump's going to open himself up for attacks because when you start attacking others, well, then they're going to go get a response. And so if you're Ron DeSantis, you can fire back with, look at the scoreboard or whatever you have. If you're Nikki Haley, whoever he attacks, that opens the door for him to absorb some damage. That's the problem with him is that he doesn't, he always punches down. And sometimes punching down allows people to, to punch up. And uh, and sometimes they land. So we'll see what happens here as we move forward with the uh, GOP primary. Do we have the sound from DeSantis? Yeah, let's listen to it. This um, I roll out of bed. I have people attacking me from all angles. It's been happening for many, many years. And if you look at the good thing about it, though, is like if you take a crisis situation like COVID, you know, the good thing about it is when you're an elected executive, you have to make all kinds of decisions. You've got to steer that ship. And the good thing is, is that the people are able to render a judgment on that, whether they reelect you or not. And I'm happy to say, you know, in my case, not only did we win reelection, we won with the highest percentage of the vote that any Republican governor candidate has in the history of the state of Florida. You know what I so here's what's amazing about that. Not only is he tooting his own horn. But he's reminding us that Donald Trump lost, lost. to Joe yeah. Biden yeah. and will lose again. That's I'm telling you, that's instincts. Mm-hmm. That's instincts. He nailed Trump, never said his name. But you know who he's talking about. Nailed him anyway. Yeah. This guy, I'm telling you, the instincts are there to put this together. And I'm restating the obvious of what you, your, your earlier point, and that is this. American people are clamoring for people different than what are currently the yeah. The ex-president and the yeah. current president. If it's you, you're pretty confident. If it's Ron DeSantis versus Joe Biden, the DeSantis we will win. Will. DeSantis will win. New will beat old. I believe that. And I'm telling you that. By the way, that clip doesn't exist if Donald Trump doesn't go out and lie about what Ron DeSantis did mm-hmm. during COVID. Mm-hmm. If Trump doesn't attack, he doesn't absorb that. And I'm telling you, of the exchange that happened, DeSantis won this exchange. And so the more that Trump lashes out, and it could be other other candidates he could lash out at, his he's prone to making mistakes. He's prone to lying. He's prone to exaggerate. And these other candidates, um, if they're smart like DeSantis, they'll take little opportunities to knife back. It's going to happen. Before we go, we mentioned earlier some news from academia. I'm not a frequent reader of the Daily Princetonian. No. What? <laughs> I, I am not. But Too much Russia today. Thank you. It was unnecessary. <laughs> For you podcast listeners, frequent ones, take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> right. Of your of your hint of what Blackberry. You, what is your media diet? It's Russia Today. You know, here's the thing. It's Raphael Warnock's newsletter. <laughs> right. 
If Ralph, you, if Ralph, you, you know Ralph, something. A lot of YouTube videos. What else? Okay, I'm gonna we, go ahead. We, and <laughs> we almost made it through, since, and I didn't even. I since, you, since you brought it up, I don't. <laughs> did I do it? It's, it's still your Joe. fault. Did I do it? <laughs> it's still your fault. How is it my fault? Because you started it. <laughs> <laughs> but he's ending it. But the point being of Russia Today, since, <laughs> since you brought it up, is that I like to consume media. I don't. That doesn't mean that I believe what they're okay. saying. The point is, is what are the people who are living there? What are they hearing? I was whenever, holding off. Whenever I go to any. <laughs> When I was growing up back in the early 1900s, <laughs> I, 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 every city that I would travel to before you had like the internets. When he was getting the Woodrow Wilson propaganda. Just, the internet and internet. I would always make it a point to pick up the daily newspaper from that place to see, okay, what, what are they saying? So to me, it's important to know what are, what are they being told. It wasn't that I believe it. Well, let, me give you, let me summarize it for you. Yeah. They're being told Russia's good. Ukraine is bad and America sucks. That's what they're being told. So does, pretty much in all. So the just stories. close your ears off. To it. <laughs> well, I just I I mean I don't know how many stories you got to read. <laughs> so the Daily Prince, Joe's like Tony. I, I thought they'd be on our side today. There's a soft... listen. Joe Joe does this out of the goodness of his own heart. Uh, He's with us every week. Uh, and deals with our crap. Anyway, there's a, there's a sophomore at Princeton. <laughs> Let, let's talk just about because this story this story is insane. Yeah. Who, Wrote uh, an article for her paper, which is called the Russia Today, <laughs> that uh, um, that American this is systems close to communist propaganda. <laughs> That's right. This yeah. op-ed. American yeah. systems of legal administration enact violence against minority populations. What she's talking about is the honor code at yeah. Princeton, mm. and the fact that if you violate such honor cord- code, you could be expelled, you could be suspended, you can you lose know, your scholarship. Lose yeah. your scholarship. If you're not familiar with honor code, it essentially is don't cheat. Yep. Plagiarism. Like the ways yeah. you can cheat, yeah. how you're right. not supposed to cheat. Don't do this. Don't do that. Right. Every college has one, especially in the Ivy League. Take mm-hmm. it very seriously. So, what do you think? <laughs> well, she was calling for the abolishing of the honor code, right? For I mean, what reason? It's racist? Yes. 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 It's racist. Well, sort of. She, she uh, compares it to the American criminal justice system, which she believes is completely illegitimate. And because it's sort of based off of the American criminal justice system, which is racist and hurts poor people and all those things, this must also affect students the same way. Thus, we must abolish it. It's absolutely And that they're less prepared, they're less less advantaged in the world, and so they're less prepared to take on the challenge of being held accountable. I'm sorry. This this is... It is... The bigotry of low expectations all over again. It's that people with maybe less privileges or less advantages, therefore, can't play by the same rules as everyone else. What I think this was about, I I caught this and and sent it around to you guys because I had been, I've heard some people lately talking about the the rejection of any kind of standards in our society, whether it's attire, whether it's um, showing up to things when you say you're going to, whether it's abiding by some basic code of ethics, like don't cheat in class and, and, and have academic standards. And I just, I thought this was just sort of a, a crazy log on that fire, like the sort of the rejection of, of any kind of standards at all. And, and which really goes to rejection of institutions, mm-hmm. rejection of traditions, rejection of, you know, essentially, you know, you think about society's building on itself over time. There are a committed group of people in this country who want to destroy the yeah. foundations of the country, of institutions yeah. that make up big parts of the country. This is part of that. This is part of that ideology. It's part of that thinking. And uh, and I don't like it. And uh, And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people who'd love to banish all academic standards out there. Uh, that's not the answer. The right. answer is to raise our standards. Yeah, the yeah. answer is to have the highest standards. That's how you drive excellence in society, and there is not a person who can't achieve it. We're all equal. We all have an equal chance to achieve, and we should all equally strive to meet these high standards. We shouldn't be lowering them. We should be raising them. So I've got two last thoughts on this. First— Fight uh, me. Argue me. No, no, no. I, I, <laughs> I completely agree. First— She's a sophomore in college, and I'm sure I said a lot of crazy stuff when I was a sophomore in college. Maybe everybody, and especially her, take a step back. Second, anybody look at her name? 
Emily Santos. We are talking about another Santos oh, no. on this podcast. Oh, wow. I don't know if they're related. I'm not Maybe saying she's they making are. it up as she goes. <laughs> she is. I, I mean, I did look up her bio. She is a star volleyball player. <laughs> Two knee replacements as well. <laughs> Sorry. Man, I just I just don't know what to say about this. I mean, like this I is... think, Scott, you could you... just take what I said because plagiarism doesn't matter you're, anymore. You're you're right on this too, and they do this with uh with like white supremacy. Like showing air up quotes. on time is now white supremacy. Your air quotes uh, don't ex- show through on the podcast. Yeah. You know, expected to be. Oh, I think they did actually come through. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were pretty exaggerated. Um, Excellent point, though. Those sorts of yeah. things are now white supremacy. It's that, and then there's also this this belief on the left now of, of refusal of any sort of punishment. Yeah. Punishment is not good. Punishment only makes people worse off. So you should never be held accountable. We should have these sort of restorative practices. Uh, and so they, they just don't believe in punishment. They don't believe in accountability. And thus you have. And the federal even... government should pay for your loans, too. Yes. Uh, well, I can get on oh, I, that. <laughs> I totally, by the way, I know we're coming down to the. I totally forgot yeah. to send this up for the agenda this week. But I just have to say, I've heard Joe Biden say during this whole debt limit. We, get, we can get into the debt limit later. <laughs> I keep hearing him say over and over again, this is America. We pay our debts. And I keep thinking. Well, some of us. <laughs> some of us do. Some of the debts. Yeah. And then, which then led me to tweet the other day you can't have a debt limit crisis if you just cancel the national debt. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know if he's thought of it yet, but someone Stay in the White tuned. House needs to write a memo. Maybe that's what Kevin McCarthy went to him with today. Let's just cancel it. Just cancel it. Forget about cancel it. Cancel everything else. We're getting canceled. You're getting canceled. Joe's been cancel canceled. everything. I don't know. Maybe yeah. some of those Team Kentucky checks will show up at the White <laughs> House and they'll be able to. Happy February. Yep. Any uh, any scenes, reds, or herds this week from anyone? Anything to, to what? Do, oh, oh yes, Jared. Oh, Jared oh wait. Wow. Hold on. I need I need to pull up a funeral dirge. <laughs> that was, he played like the world's tiniest violin. That was the best collective groan we've had Can you on explain this show. Why? Yeah, I'm he, wearing my Tom Brady jersey tonight uh, in memoriam of who I I think truly is the greatest team sport athlete of all time. He's not bar dead. none in memoriam of okay. his career. Of his career. This will be amazing. Keep talking, and I'll I'll have um, it queued up for you, and then I'll, you'll have a you'll have an amazing. This will be great. Truthfully, it's a little strange. I actually think we did this like a year ago, yeah, and yeah, and, yeah. He, and and so it's a little bit of a boy who cried wolf. We uh we got all. <laughs> What is that? It's a funeral dirge for Tom Brady's, for career. Tom Brady's Just career. Keep talking, Jared. It's um, it's a little strange. Because... You are as ridiculous as I am right now. <laughs> Just let them keep going. Let them keep going. Um, no, it's a little strange because we got all the videos, we got all the tweets, we got all the things last year, uh, and so there's no like new tribute video. <laughs> Tom was a great guy, and it was great to spend time with him, and we'll miss him dearly, and miss him on Sundays, and. We wish him well. Tom, we wish you were here with us. Uh, Did you ever meet him personally? Can you tell us about that time? Uh, no, but people always ask me, what would you say if you met Tom Brady? I meant yeah. to ask and, you that. What uh, would you say if you met Tom Brady? So Come on the podcast. It, it, it used to be the the pass he threw to Brandon LaFell to win the divisional game against the Ravens when they went on to win the Seahawks Super Bowl. Of course, that's the Malcolm Butler. That was always my favorite play, like one of my favorite memories of all time. And so I always wanted to tell him that, like, that's in grand. That, that, that would be a part que- of the my The question life. was, like, what would you ask him? I don't know what I would not ask what you would him. tell him. What about Spygate and the fact they cheated to beat the Rams? <laughs> well, that, that wasn't true, but uh, sure. they didn't They didn't film the practices. ESPN had what to redact that What would you say to Tom story. Brady? Did you know I'm in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Like, we should make a list of famous people. What would you say to this person? That'd be an excellent show. You know what I would say? Dude, Giselle, what are you doing? (laughs) Come on. What is wrong with you? I think that's why he quit again. Yeah. Get his house back back in order. I think this is all a ploy. I don't know if the ploy, it's probably just, it's, it's, it's time. I, and I have, we, have, we, have, we, have we eulogized Tom Brady enough for you? Ooh, this uh, no, is I can, how more. You want me to do a couple more hours? <laughs> I could do. It's a little more I don't know no, I mean, playing. It's a funeral dirge. Okay, I, I, I'm about done with all of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, at, end of an era. I saw a thing today, too. How I many mean, texts did you get from people today saying that they were sorry? Amount, yeah. Uh, but, I mean. For your loss. I, I actually think, so, like, Brady, Breeze, Manning, Phil. Well, far maybe a little bit behind, but that era is over. But Mahomes, Burrow, Herbert, Lamar, there's a lot of good young talent in the NFL right now. And so, um, I mean, Mahomes is, you know, if he wins another one in two weeks, could be kind of the next Brady. So mm. 
I think it's an exciting time. I think Brady kind of got out at the right time. This football podcast is amazing. Yeah. Yes. I'm glad you had the opportunity to talk about that. Yeah. That's Do you feel better now or worse? Uh, uh, worse, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that this could be a space. All right, let's just get this done real fast. Kevin's, uh, you like the wax figure of Lizzo? They got <laughs> Sean. What did you do? You went to something. What did you do tonight? I went to. The, you went to a dinner. Joe, to Jack Harlow. Jack Harlow. Jack Harlow. Sean had dinner. Check. <laughs> Joe, what have you seen? I saw well more television. I, I'm a couple of years behind on the Netflix Dope Sick. It was excellent. Okay, good. Really. That's on Hulu. Was it Hulu? Well, there Amazing. you go. Thank you. It's on. It's, 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 it's they're all on Netflix. The Hulu. Mine. It's on it's like very quickly yes. for the first time. I finally been meaning to do it for years. Visited Teddy Roosevelt Island in Washington oh, D.C. Amazing little nature walk. Highly recommend. And they haven't stricken his name off of that for any political correct reasons yet. No, it, it, there's many. It's a National Park Service uh, installation, but there's signs out there about why they call it that. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, Union troops were actually stationed on this island during the Civil War, and uh, so they had a little bit of history out there. And so, is there a stamp from the NPS there? There is, but not on the island. You have to go, as I understand it, to the George Washington Parkway headquarters what? to get it. And I did not make it on my trip. So I visited. So now I'm eligible to get my stamp, at least in my own code. You also have to answer a number of questions about swallows and how fast they fly. Sounds like Jamie Comer should look into that one next. That doesn't sound right. There was no park ranger out there. I would love for there to be a stamp out there because, as you know, I love to collect them. Yeah. Thank you for joining us this week. (laughs) Thank you for hosting us. Kevin, Sean, Jared. I'm Joe Arnold. Have a lovely week. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.